Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. There's been no shortage of interest in the top of the ticket in the 2020 election, but there's much at stake down ticket as well at the state level. Shareholders Sarah Mercer and Bryn Gibson from the firm's State and Local Legislation and Policy Group break down races to watch at the gubernatorial, attorney general, and state legislature level that could also have a big impact. Welcome to another edition of the Brownstein Podcast Series. I'm Sarah Mercer, and I am joined today by my colleague, Bryn Gibson. Hey, Bryn. Hey, Sarah. It's good to be here. Oh, it's so great to have you. Bryn just joined us. He had just served as general counsel to Nevada Governor um, Sisolak, and we are so excited to have you at our firm. I am most excited to have you here with me today to talk about what's going on in sort of down ticket races all across the country. We've heard so much about the presidential, but you and I being state government relations specialists, I, I hope have some good insights for our listeners on what's happening elsewhere in the election world. No, I'm excited to be here. It's a, you know, this is an overlooked space and it's one that's critical to the the lives of most people. I mean, if you're, you know, whether it's a a pothole that gets filled by a city council person or it's a, you know, Medicaid budget um, that's being matched by federal funds, it happens at the state level or lower. And so these races are critical. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Well, we've got to that end, we've got like three buckets of races that we're going to talk about today, and that's uh, races for governor, for attorney general, and also the state legislature um, around. And so let's just, let's just dive in uh, and talk about what's going on in these gubernatorial elections around the country. It was so often that statewide elections in most states are held in the midterm election year. So, uh, you know, usually like the most recent, most statewide uh, races for governor and for AG were held in 2018, but there are a handful of states who are having their uh, statewide elections this year. And that includes, we've got 11 governor's races. They are in Washington and Utah, Montana, North Dakota, Missouri, Indiana, West Virginia, North Carolina, Delaware, Vermont, and New Hampshire. And, you know, most of these races, there's a, we have a, a, an incumbent who's running. So actually, in, there's only two states that have an open seat, and that's in Utah and Montana. But there's really only one race, right, Bryn, that is competitive? Well, at least in my view, there some would, I think some may disagree, but I think there, there are really is, there really is just one race that's competitive, and that's in Montana. Utah technically has a race, um, but it's such a Republican state that what you'll see there is you'll see, I mean, usually you'll see people who 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 are done with their elections once they're done with the with, with the caucus system they have in the state. If a Republican doesn't get a majority in Utah in the caucus, then sometimes there'll, there'll be a runoff or primary. Um, but in this case, we have a Republican and Democrat, both in general election. And the Republican uh, in Utah is the current lieutenant governor. And so um, Mr. Cox, I think, is a strong favorite to win that race. It's been a long time since they elected a Democrat, and the Democrats they, they have elected tend to be very different than traditional Democratic candidates in other states. So I, I do anticipate Utah will be a Republican-held um, seat. And so that leaves Montana, which is a, a fascinating, beautiful state um, and has a, a very, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, a very sort of just unintuitive um, electoral uh, outcome process. They, they tend to, even though it's a state that, you know, is uh, – 
there are lots of Republicans in the state. They are libertarian-minded, uh, lots of CCW holders, lots of hunting, um, outdoorsmanship, and so on. Uh, and, and also respect for the free market. Uh, there's also a strong streak for a unique kind of Democrat, um, sort of what, what, what you and I might call an intermountain sort of Western Democrat. And these are the kinds of Democrats who will score an A grade with the NRA. They will um, they'll be hunters and fisher people, men, women themselves. They'll um, appeal to farmers and ranchers so that they're very different in a lot of respects. They break from their colleagues in traditional Democrat states. And so that, that is a competitive race. Yeah, and we actually saw three of those uh, elected officials as the sort of Mountain West politicians run actually in the Democrat primary. We had the current governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, and then we had Colorado Senator Michael Bennett and former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, all kind of seeing if there was some kind of an appeal that they could make to Democrats and even maybe unaffiliated or more more moderate voters, uh, maybe even in both parties, uh, just for that reason that you said that there's uh, that there's sort of this type of politician it, kind of in this region who straddles the party in in certain ways. Of course, none of them got too too much traction, which is one reason that Governor Bullock is now running for the U.S. Senate, which is opening up this particular race in Montana and making it quite competitive. The uh, Republican candidate, um, Greg Gianforte, he lost to Governor Bullock in 2016 by, I think, around four points, four, per- four percentage points. So, you know, that's a lot in an election, but that is certainly something that can be overcome. Um, and the, the polls currently are showing him in the lead. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about that race is that you've got, you've got Representative uh, Greg Gianforte, he's, and, and he's, he's able to self-fund. And so where he was running against Governor Bullock as, a, as an incumbent, that's one thing. And to lose by four points mm-hmm. in a race like that, you're right, that's, that is a, a loss. But four points is generally within the margin of error of most polls. And so to self-fund in an open seat is a very different proposition or to be able to self-fund. And so, yeah, I think absolutely it's a competitive race. Um, he's running against lieutenant, the, the current lieutenant governor there who has, you know, obvious name ID. And I I assume the support of the outgoing governor who's running for U.S. Senate. Although whenever you have an up-ticket candidate or a sitting governor running for a higher seat, like a U.S. Senate seat, they're limited as far as what they can do and what they will do uh, in down-ballot races as far as endorsements and really putting their their people on the ground because they're concerned about their own races. Sure. But that's a very competitive race. And and I'm, I'm excited to see the outcome there. Your point about it being an, the difference between sort of being an open race versus, you know, racing against an incumbent is such a good one because in 2012, the margin of that race was just 1.6 oh, wow. percentage points. So it was very close in 2012 and is probably like you suggested what is contributing to making this race more competitive this cycle. Uh, maybe than than it has. So Montana is certainly a state to watch. You know, I think there's a lot of talk about what's going on in in North Carolina, especially for the race for the U.S. Senate seat. That governor's race is also up. And so, you know, that's another one that maybe some others would throw into the mix um, of being, you know, competitive. But yeah, I think as, as governor's races goes, you know, we've currently got 26 Republican governors and 24 Democrat governors, I would be surprised um, if that doesn't move to a 27-23 split or, you know, possibly if, depending on what happens in North Carolina, possibly even going to a 28-22 to split. So the split of governors across the country is, um, it's fascinating to me just how equal that is. 
It's very equal. Yeah, it is. It's very, very equal. And which is such a great lead in to kind of our second bucket of races, the attorneys general races all around the country, where the AG split is exactly the same as the as the governor's split. There are 26 Republican AGs and 24 Democrat AGs, which is just remarkable. Right. There are 10 AGs um, who are up for the election this cycle. And again, just like with the governor's races, in most states, the AG races happen in the midterm, even election year off cycle. I'll note that there are a few states where the AG isn't elected. The AG is selected by um, either the legislature or the governor, or in some cases, the state Supreme Court. So there's not always an elected AG, but we've got 10 races. And you know, again, the AG's race is up in Montana. That's probably maybe one that it, that could flip um, from Republican to Democrat. But uh-huh. it just doesn't seem like there are that many competitive AG races this particular cycle. There are not. And that's, that's it's surprising because, I mean, I think people, when they think of the attorney general as the you know, top cop in the state, yeah. they think of these these races is not is not traditionally falling into you know partisan type races. More and more over time, they become more partisan. I, I remember I was the first assistant attorney general in the state of Nevada, and one of the questions that w- that I was asked when I was sort of being interviewed for the job was, "Are you willing to call balls and strikes? Meaning, are you going to be a neutral arbiter and you know adhere to the laws uh, the, to the best of your your understanding?" And I said, "Of course." Well, I mean, so that was, you know, a, a while ago. And over time, what's happened is you've seen the rise of uh, partisan groups, Republican Attorneys General Association, and on the Democrat side, the Democratic Attorneys General Association, where NAG, the National Attorney General's Association, used to be the primary body, right? So Republicans, Democrats would put aside their their party affiliations, come together under NAG, single umbrella, have discussions about, you know, what should be bipartisan issues. Uh, now you have RAGA and DAGA, that compete for their time and also raise enormous amounts of money for reasons that you and I can talk about. Yeah, I think, you know, that's such an important point that AGs often in the past have been seen as kind of like, you know, within their own state state walls and would get together to your point, their staff would get together and they would get together. You know, they still do to a certain extent to kind of talk about what they're seeing especially in newly emerging areas. I think about how the legalization of marijuana, for example, is happening across the country uh, because of citizen ballot measures. And so AGs and governments, whether they wanted to or not, are needing to deal with regulating that. And so in thinking about consumer protection issues in that regard, um, and as well as law enforcement issues of making sure that you you can clear out the black and the gray markets in that area. Um, The other area that I think about is data privacy, where there has been a desire around the country on the part of states and other consumer advocates to enact data privacy legislation and protections, but there's been no action at the federal government. So although we haven't seen it really roll out, but I think AGs are kind of like trying to to share information and gain some best practices so that they can weigh in. And if legislation passes in their state, be able to manage it in a certain way. Those are just our two issues that come to mind. But Increasingly, we see these more partisan efforts, and it really showed, I think, during the um, Obama administration when you had many Republican attorneys general kind of teaming up to bring lawsuits, sometimes around um, the environmental regulations uh, and, and, and other issues that tend to have more of a partisan 
and more conservative bent. And then likewise, now what we've seen over the last few years during the Trump administration is we've got Democrat attorneys general teaming up to bring lawsuits around things like, you know, student loan servicing, I mean, or even things as even more directly regarding the Trump administration around like the emoluments clause, those kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. we're really, we are seeing this kind of partisan shift. And, you know, one reason may be that AGs are seeing that there's an opportunity to in addition to maybe create broader reach and have greater impact, they also can see themselves elevating onto a national stage and possibly opening themselves up for some higher office. Too. No question. It's, a, it's always been a good platform, especially for a Democrat. And the reason it's, it's, it's been a particularly useful uh, platform just as an elected office for a Democrat is it because you're the top law enforcement officer. And if you're looking for you know, police union and, you know, and law enforcement endorsements, as a Democrat, sometimes they can be harder to get. Um, and so it puts you right in there. I mean, you've been the top cop. And so it, it's, it's been historically very helpful. But as you mentioned, as it becomes more partisan and as they enter sort of the national arena, it really does put them front and center. I mean, the, the ACA, the, the Affordable Care Act litigation is, is a prime example. So you have the 2012 SCOTUS opinion, right? But it upholds the ACA, but on a narrow basis, they're talking about the, you know, this, the con- congressional power to tax. Right. That was sort of Roberts. You know, that was the way he he threaded the eye of the needle. Well, going forward um, in 2017, the president then signed um, tax legislation that had come to his desk that eliminated the ACA's penalty for individuals uh, who didn't have coverage. Yeah, the individual mandate. Right. Individual mandate, it's called. Right. So then almost immediately thereafter, Texas, with a coalition of Republican states, filed suit in a Texas federal court against the ACA. And so you, you see the rise of, in that case, the Republicans attacking a federal law that is one of the most important laws. I mean, like it or hate it, it's a critical law. And you have the, the, the AG of Texas leading a coalition of Republican AGs attacking it in federal court. They win, right? Then it goes to the Fifth Circuit. Fifth Circuit, you know, they, they uphold on a narrow basis for man for additional review of whether or not there's severability. And then you have, you know, the Supreme Court takes it up. And now you have DOJ on the opposite side, and you've got th- these maneuverings between Democrat, Democrats and Democratic AGs are now defending it, which is a fascinating sort of turn. But you have really Republican attorneys generals moving against it with Democratic attorneys generals trying to defend it. And so they're front and center on maybe the most important piece of legislation that's in, in front of the courts right now. Wow. And yeah, and, and, and really reflecting that that partisanship that we're feeling and seeing even, you know, in at, at the federal level too, even though they are really responsible for what's happening in their states. Right. I mean, that's the scope of the impact um, is just, is, is huge. It's huge. And, and what you'll see behind the scenes, you'll see attorneys general, they, I mean, at these RAGA events and DAGA events in particular, they get to know one another and their staffs get to know one another. They're solicitors that bring, you know, their, the, the actions in federal court, appellate court, U.S. Supreme Court. They get to know each other well. And then they have, you know, sort of additional collaboration that happens at, at groups like, you know, FedSoc and other groups on the other side. And, and so they'll, they'll go around and collect amicus briefs. They'll try to find sign-ons for, for, their, for their lawsuits if they're leading them. It takes a lot of effort to draft a, you know, sort of ab initio your own suit. So signing on to something gives you the ability to sign on with your colleague, do them, a, you know, a solid or a favor um, if it's in line with your agenda or your politics. And there's a lot of that that, that happens um, behind the scenes in the AG world. So it's, and these are issues that are, I mean, I, I recall one, one, one example of uh, there was a suit in Texas 
and it was a case that involved campaign contributions and disclosure. And so we're weighing in from Nevada, which is fascinating because, as you mentioned, the attorney general for a state is, is the top law enforcement officer for that state. But the issues they're now weighing in on are national issues all day long. And so you kind of see that the, the AG, I mean, they sort of stand in this place where they're pivoting kind of up into these federal issues, but also helping to carry out and execute and implement and oversee and weigh in on the state issues that are happening like at the state legislature. And even sometimes, I don't know that it's more than governors, because certainly as you allude, as you mentioned earlier on, I mean, the governors are, are obviously often interacting with the federal government on receiving appropriations uh, and other kind of federal monies that are flowing from the federal government through the state, you know, down through the state, through the state agencies and the governor's Um, are really serving as the executive, helping to push that money kind of out and around and into their states. But from a policy influence perspective, it's, you know, the HEs really have found a way to have a very big impact by using the courts. They really have. I mean, they're they're a very powerful group. And, you know, a governor, they're the chief executive of of their state. And in some states, Nevada, for example, there are statutory restrictions on what the attorney general can weigh in on, what, what he or she can sue on sort of individually. So in Nevada, you can't sue as the attorney general without the governor's approval on items that relate to public lands or water. But everything else is, is fair game. And so in, in some states, there are limit, those kinds of limitations. And, and there's also the sort of non, uh, unspoken limitation that, that's a political consideration. That is, if, if you have same party control of the AG, AG's house and the governor's, the governor's mansion or the executive branch, as the AG, you, you probably don't want, unless you want to challenge the, the governor, uh, you don't want to get crosswise with the governor if, they're, if, you're, if you're same party. Um, it can create, you know, lots of headache and consternation. So you generally want to try to be on the same page. And so very often they're talking to one another about things they're going to weigh in on as far as amicus briefs, um, individual suits, and so on. So there's a lot of collaboration, but they also have a lot of freedom. That's a great segue into talking about what's going on at the state legislature level uh, with respect to elections, because you know, you talk about that relationship between the AG and the governor and whether or not they're from the same party, which, you know, especially in a lot of the swing states or like, you know, we've talked before about kind of the Intermountain West states, you would have split party. The AG would be from one party, often in kind of historically, but not always from a Republican side. And maybe you would have a Democratic governor or they would flip flop. We're seeing more and more that the parties are aligning. And that has We've never seen that to the extent that we now see with party control of the governor's office and both chambers of the state legislature. So most state legislatures have two chambers, just like the U.S. Congress does, a Senate and a House or whatever they might call the two chambers. Sometimes they call it the Senate and the General Assembly or the the Senate and the Assembly. There's one state, Nebraska, which is unicameral. They only have one chamber. It's nonpartisan, so they don't um, the candidates don't affiliate when they run for their primaries. But Nebraska aside, we have historically seen many states where they had maybe, you know, split control in the legislature. So you'd have one chamber that was of uh, that was Democrat, one chamber that was a Republican served as a little bit of a check on policymaking. Um, Or you might you'd have a governor from a different party. But we have just seen this surge and this rise of these trifectas uh, in the last couple of election cycles. And so, like, Bryn, what what's a trifecta and like, why does that matter? 
Well, a, a trifecta is when you have single party control. And, and when, I, when I say parties, there are lots of, you know, parties outside of traditional Republican and Democratic politics. There's, there are green, there are, there, there are all number, a number of different kinds of parties. But I, I'm speaking strictly of Republican Democrat control because those are the ones that are really sort of effective in the 50 states. So you have same party control of both houses of a bicameral legislature. And then you have the chief executive who's a, also the same party. The challenge, I mean, it, it depends on where the governor falls on the political spectrum and maybe even the leader or leaders of the two bodies, of the, the lower house and the upper house. But primarily the governor, because the governor owns, has to sign whatever comes out of the legislature. So if the governor's a moderate and you have same party control, one of the great challenges is that you are trying to maintain comedy or relationship within the party itself, so the larger party, which is something that in a lot of Western states isn't the primary mover. I mean, it's the individual person, it's the quality of the candidate and so on, but parties are becoming more important. Um, through the caucus system, and as, you're, as, you, as you noted, through straight ticket voting, that, that's happening much more often. So people are not splitting tickets, voting for Democrats and Republicans on the same ballot as much as they used to. In a trifecta where you have the same party, the challenge, again, if you have a moderate Democrat, for example, as a governor, and you have uh, two Democrats who control the two houses of legislature, the more extreme wings of the party are going to be pushing hard for more progressive agendas. And the legislature is going to be hard pressed not to pass. And the reason for that is you end up getting primaried if you don't, if you don't move on what the, the far left would want. And so then the, the governor, who may be a moderate, is put in a position where, where he or she probably may not be keen on the legislation, but probably can't veto it. And, and on the other side, on the Republican side, you have the far right pushing hard. And the Republican-controlled legislature in a trifecta having a hard time pushing back on far-right agendas. And so they pass out legislation that's very, very conservative and maybe more, much more conservative than the leaders of either the, the upper or lower house. Then it, then it gets to the governor, who may be a moderate Republican, and he or she will have a very difficult time vetoing. And so that's, that's the real challenge um, with a trifecta, is trying to maintain comedy within the party, trying to keep all of your people within, that is, within the party who are in power, your leader of the upper house, lower house, governor, maybe even AGs, in a position where they're not going to be challenged in primaries and lose, and they don't get so out of step with the electorate as a general group, the majority, that is, that they're unelectable for higher office or their current office. So that's the real challenge. I just, I want to dive in a little more deeply on your note about split ticket voting. There's some incredible data out there about voter behavior. And one piece of data that comes from the Brookings Institution, they track what are the percentage of congressional house districts that were won by the opposite party who won the presidential race. So this is at the federal level. But this data really shows that we've seen this incredible decline in split ticket voting and that voters are increasingly voting kind of a straight party ticket. On this data, there's been this slide that in 1984, 43.7% of voters split their ticket. If you look at, again, this is data from looking at how they voted for, how voter voted for president, which party, and then how the voter voted for the House district, the congressional House district that they live in. When you go to 2016, it drops all the way down. I mean, there's some a little bit of bumps down the road, but it is a it is a very steep decline down to eight percent in 2016, which is just remarkable. And I think where we see that in this data around who controls the state legislatures is 
back in 2002, we had 12 states where there was split control of the legislature. And in 2020, we have one, Minnesota. There's, there's some argument that Alaska is, even though the Republicans control both chambers, there's some moderate Republicans who have sided, who have kind of grouped together with the Democrats in the Alaska House, and, and really that's controlled by the Democrats. So Alaska is kind of, I guess, in practice is, is, is also split. So we basically have two kind of depending on how you count it. But that is, you know, it's kind of hovered around 12 states that were split in, two, in 2002 and then kind of hovered around kind of between 8, 10, 7. But then we saw this big drop off in 2018. There were five. And then now we have, you know, one, sort of technically one, but really two in practice. And that's just a remarkable, remarkable drop. And there's a lot of state legislative races that are happening, a lot of state legislators who, who are up. For election, there are, according to the, to the um, Cook Political Report, there are like 19 chambers that are competitive. And what's really interesting is that all except the Nevada Senate, which you can share maybe a little bit of insight on, um, they are all in swing states. So these are this is in Arizona and Minnesota and New Hampshire, Iowa, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. And this really sounds a lot like the like the travel log that we've seen President Trump and Joe Biden take in the last couple of days. And that's because these are the battleground states. Right. I mean, this is where the voters are undecided. And there's obviously a battle. Uh, there's obviously, a, a, you know, a lot of vying for the votes at the top of the ticket for the presidential race. But these races down ticket are just as competitive in these states. You're right, Sarah. The battleground states really are a, f- a reflection of the, the sort of the travel log of the current uh, presidential candidates. And uh, one, of the, one of the ways I think we'll see uh, going forward that it's reflected in the outcome of this, this current election down ballot is with mail-in voting as a result of the pandemic occurring in many states, people have more time to fill out their ballots all the way down. Ballots can be long. As we all know, I mean, right now in Nevada, all of our judges, all of our district court judges are on the ballot. There are 30, 35 judges. People going into a school or a grocery store to vote at a polling place, they may not get down to those elections. But sitting at home and having plenty of time, many days in in, in cases, to fill out a a ballot completely, they're going to go all the way down. And so where there are um, parties associated with a candidate, there aren't in judge races, but there are in almost every other case, I believe that they're going to just probably in most cases just straight ticket uh, vote. And that means all the way down the ballot. So we may see even more partisanship enter into the political arena in races that traditionally wouldn't catch anyone's attention. Because they would have just left them blank. They would have, you know, done the big ticket races and then just kind of, you know, been feeling more time pressured and would have would have just kind of left those blank and there would have been no votes cast, you know, fewer right. votes cast. I mean, you're standing yeah. in line, you've got to show ID, all that stuff that goes on before you even get into the ballot box. Um, people very often, I mean, we're just, I mean, humans are humans and our behavior is such that we want to get on to the next thing, right? So unless you're really dedicated, a real inveterate voter, you may just vote in the primary race, the major races that you've seen on television and then leave. So yes, I think we're going to see that, that, that straight ticket voting all the way down especially with mail-in ballots. Well, Bryn, thanks so much for joining me today. It's really, it's really fun to talk with you about what's going on in races other than the presidential race, which, of which there are <laughs> many. And I, I hope that our listeners enjoyed hearing about that. And again, welcome to the firm. Welcome to the podcast. Can't wait to have you on again. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. 
If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.